You know, I've got to say as we get started this morning, I just love that video. The reason I do is because I've kind of lived through every one of those stages but the last one. And that, that picture of the little girl coming into the bedroom and climbing in the bed with mom and dad, um, there was a point, and I was trying to think in my mind, and we never got to four, but there was a point where it was Sherry and myself and three of our kids in the bed. Now you say, that's not healthy, and I can live with that, but, but it happened. We literally, we literally came to a point where we had to lock our door to keep them from coming to get in bed with us after we put them in their bed and they fell asleep. And the very first time that happened, Jonathan, who was, I don't know how old he was at that point in time, 15, 16, just, just joking. But, um, <laughs> but you know, he came and he, he, he did the door and it was locked. And, um, and we thought he went back to bed. We got up the next morning and opened our door and there he was at our door asleep on the floor. And so I want you to know, and the reason I say that is because as we go through this series for the next six weeks, this isn't just for the, the newly wed or the nearly wed. It's for those who are in the twilight of their marriages. Because the book, Song of Solomon, has to deal with every single part of our marriage from, from beginning to end. Now, I want to start by asking you a question. How many of you, and I want you to raise your hand, how many of you have ever heard a sermon series on Song of Solomon? If you've heard a sermon series, not a message, but a series on Song of Solomon, raise your hand up high. All righty. See about... Four of you, something like that. Okay, put them down. Now, now, that's strange to me. And the reason it's strange to me is because we as, as Bible-believing Christians say all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and, and is profitable, it is valuable for teaching us truth. We say every part and parcel of God's Word is important, it's valuable And yet it seems like there are Bible teaching churches all across America who have skipped certain portions of Scripture simply because it's difficult to understand, it's hard to unpack, or maybe it's a little uncomfortable. But I want you to know that if we do not take the entire counsel of God's Word from beginning to end and unpack it, we're going to be missing key components of life that God wants to teach us. And, and we will miss the full and meaningful life, the abundant life that God has planned for us. Now, let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever read through the entire book, Song of Solomon? You, you've read through the entire book. All righty. Super. A, a few more of you. And, and let me encourage you, as we go through the series, to read through this. Because again, if God's word is true, and it is, and God's word is profitable in what it says, and it is, then if we are not reading the entire word of God, we're going to miss key components that God has for us. Like, let me give you an example, because God's word speaks to different areas of our life. The book of Genesis tells our origin story. It tells where we came from, how we came into being in God's plan for us. The book of Revelation tells us 
where we're going, where we're headed, how the, the world is going to end, and, and where we're going to spend eternity. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us the story of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, and, and how he fulfilled that purpose. The book of Romans is, is, a, is an incredible theology book. It unpacks the doctrines of sin and And salvation and sanctification. The book of James is a very practical book. It tells us how to live out very practically the word of God in our lives. But the book Song of Solomon is given to us by God to show us what love and sex and marriage and romance between a man and a woman is supposed to look like. Now, there are some people today that, that tell us the, the Song of Solomon is simply a picture, it's an allegory of, of God's love for Israel or Christ's love for the church. And yet, I want you to know that as you read this book, it's next to impossible to interpret it that way. If you interpret it that way, you are not being true to Scripture. Because Scripture is very clear that God is speaking to the romantic love that a man has for a woman and the seasons of life that they go through. Now in the book Hosea, God makes it clear that God is using Hosea's life circumstances and how his wife Gomer cheats on him and and leaves him to show God's people Israel How God's love is is faithful even when we're faithless. And God says that very clearly in the book of Hosea. And yet in the book of Song of Solomon, the name God is not even mentioned. Now we see God throughout the book, but God is not mentioned by name in this book. It's obvious as you read this book that God is trying to tell us a story. A passionate story, a steamy story, a sexy story, a love story. And the truth is, it's really a love song. Look at verse 1 with me, if you will. And I hope you'll open up your Bible and follow along in God's Word with me. Because we're going to be unpacking these first two chapters this morning. But in verse 1 it says, This is Solomon's song of songs, more wonderful than any other. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 4, we are told that Solomon wrote 3,000 proverbs. He wrote over 1,000 songs. And yet, he tells us right here that this was his greatest. Song of Solomon takes Solomon and the love of his life, the Shulamite, and walks us through their relationship from their courtship to their marriage to their honeymoon uh, until the time that, that they grow old together. And listen closely. God wants you to have a great marriage. God doesn't just want you to have a lasting marriage. God doesn't just want you to have a good marriage. God wants you to have a great marriage, a sizzling marriage. And the reason he wants that is is twofold. First of all, God wants you happy. He loves you and he wants you happy. Now, that's not God's first plan for your life. His first plan is for you to be holy. And as you discover holiness, you will discover happiness. 
But God loves you and God wants you happy. But I've got to be honest with you. I've heard people and some people have come to my office and and they've said, well, I believe God wants me happy. And and they say that as a prelude to, well, I'm not happy with the person I'm with. Therefore, I'm going to leave them for the person I've already chosen to be with next. And can I tell you that, that you're never going to find what you're looking for that way. You're never going to find that, that, that relationship that you desire going from relationship to relationship because one person can never make you happy. Only God can. And when you discover God's plan and, and you surrender, you submit to God's plan, then God begins to do a work in you and through you that brings happiness to your life. So God loves you and, and God wants you happy. But there's a second reason, and and that's because your marriage is a picture to the world of Christ's love for us. It it makes that very clear in Ephesians chapter 5. When when Paul was going through this beautiful picture of marriage where he says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. And he goes through all of that. He says at the very end, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. And, And so what he is saying is... Our marriage is a picture to the world of Christ's love for us. And how good our marriage is will depict to the world how great God's love is. If we have lousy marriages, it's saying to the world, well, this God must really not be that great. But when people are looking for something and and they discover that that our marriages seem to be something that they don't have, then let me tell you, that will be a hook to the world that God has something greater for us. You see, God wants us to have healthy marriages. He wants us to have loving marriages. He wants us to have, listen, steamy, sexy marriages. He really does. And yet, From all the research I've done, it doesn't look like that's the kind of marriages most people have. Statistics reveal that one in four of the people in this room are either in a bad marriage right now or are coming out of a bad marriage. Did you hear that? One in four of the people in this room are either in a bad marriage or they're coming out of a bad marriage marriage. Over 50% of all couples who intend to stay together, they're not planning on a divorce, they're not looking for a divorce, they intend to stay together. Over 50% of those couples say, if I had it to do all over again, I would marry someone else. Now that's frightening to me. It is sad to me that over 50% of married couples are sitting in loveless marriages hanging on because that's what they're supposed to do. When God wants you to have not just a good marriage, but a great marriage. Now before we go any further, we've got to address something for all of you who have read the Old Testament or know anything about the story of Solomon. And that is, as we read this book, Song of Solomon, 
How can he be so passionate with this woman when he had so many wives, when he had so many concubines? Well, I want you to listen to what God's Word says in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab and Ammon and Edom and Sidon and, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet, Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth, 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. That's what happened. Now, you see, I'm convinced, like many others, that, that Song of Solomon was written when Solomon was a young man. And he had fallen head over heels in love with Shulamite. The book of Proverbs was written when Solomon was, was middle-aged. And he had begun to make some not-so-wise choices. The book of Ecclesiastes was written toward the end of his life where he had made all of these poor choices and he had discovered that even though he had searched for meaning and fulfillment and in happiness and in money and in wealth and in sex and in, and in drunken revelry and all kind of things, he couldn't find it. And finally, he came back to the conclusion that what we really need to do is fear God and serve him forever. And so at the end of his life, he, he made this turn back to God because he discovered that, that what he was looking for, where his heart was turned because of these relationships with all of these women who served other gods, he realized that he could never find happiness in that. And he turned back to the very beginning. In Proverbs chapter 5, I, I think Solomon gives us a picture of what every one of us should look for. He gives us some sound advice and it's from his personal experience. Listen to what he said. He said, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or, or fondle the breast of a promiscuous woman? For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. Now, I believe the book Song of Solomon, like I said, was written before his fall. Before he was led astray by many wives and many loves. And that's a warning to us. And the reason it's a warning is this. If Solomon was so in love with Shulamite, and yet he turned from her and chased after many women, and he was the wisest man that ever lived, if we don't guard ourselves then the same thing can happen to us. You see, there are some of you here right now who are, who are saying, that could never happen to me. Watch out. Because Solomon was a lot more wise than you. 
And it happened to him. And so just because you have a good marriage right now, if you don't continue to work at it, you don't continue to to till the soil, if you will, your marriage will not be what you want it to be later on in life. Now, as we get started, I want you to discover this, and you can write this down. A good marriage isn't so much about finding the right person as it is being the right person. Let me say that again. A good marriage isn't so much based upon finding the right person as it is being the right person. Someone said it this way. Become the person that you are looking for is looking for. Now, I know that can be confusing, so let me say it again. Become the person that you are looking for is looking for. In other words, don't just... Try to find the right person, be the right person. And don't get me wrong, finding the right person is important. You need to look for the right person and pray for the right person. I believe with all my heart, God brought my wife and I together. And yet, I believe even more strongly than that, that being the right person is more important. You see, when we focus primarily on finding We have a tendency to blame our spouse for all of our marriage problems. But when we focus on being, we always start by looking in the mirror when we are working to improve our marriage. And here's what I've discovered. We would much rather look at the other person than look in the mirror. I've been pastoring for for 33 years. and, And I've counseled a lot of people. And, and, and I dare say that if there has been anyone, there has been less than a handful, less than five people who have come into my office in 33 years who were having marital problems and said, Pastor, can you help me? I'm a lousy husband. Pastor, can you help me? I'm a lousy wife. I don't recall, though there may be one, I don't recall anyone coming to my office and saying that, but... I've had a lot of people who've come to my office and said, Pastor, I need some help with my marriage. My wife is, you can fill in the blank. Or I've had some women come into my office and say, boy, Pastor, I need help with my marriage. My husband is, and you can fill in the blank. You see, it's much easier for us to look at the other person and blame them than to look in the mirror and blame ourselves. And why do we do that? We do that because we're selfish, self-centered people. That's who we are. But if you want to have a good marriage, a great marriage, a sizzling marriage, you have to move from being self-centered, you have to move from being selfish to focus on the person that you were married to. Now, as we get started in this series, there are two books that, that I want to recommend to you that if you haven't read, you need to buy them. You probably can go on Amazon and, and buy them real cheap or at a used bookstore because both of them have been out a while, but they are classics, and I, I really do believe they can help your, your marriage. The first one is called His Needs, Her Needs. It's by Willard Harley, a, a Christian marriage counselor psychologist. His needs, her needs. The second one is Five Love Languages, and it's written by Gary Chapman. 
And if you haven't read, read those books, I would encourage you to get both of them and read them because they will do wonders for your marriage. Now, as we start unpacking Song of Solomon, we discover some characteristics in these first two chapters that I believe a godly man and a godly woman is looking for and desiring in the person that they're marrying. And you say, well, why did you say a godly man, a godly woman? Because that's what we're talking about. You see, our desire is not to raise up secular people. I mean, you can go to any seminar and find out what they say. You can read men are from Pluto and women are from Mercury or, you know, all those other books out there. And you can find out what the secular world says. But you're here in church. And so if you're here in church, we're going to tell you, you should be looking for a godly woman. And this is what a godly woman is looking for. And if you're a woman, you should be looking for a godly man. And this is what a godly man is looking for. So let's jump into this. And we're going to have to hurry this, this first week. Because we're going to talk about five characteristics that a woman should look for, five characteristics that a man should look for. You can unpack them a little more, but we're going to try to hit it as thoroughly as we can. First of all, a godly woman looks for a man who has godly character. Now, I know if your Bible is open, you're saying, let's read verse 2. I like verse 2, especially if you're a man. But we're going to head on to verse 3. We're going to come back to verse 2. But in verse 3, it says this, how fragrant. And this is the Shulamite speaking. She says, how fragrant your cologne. Your name is like a spreading fragrance. No wonder all the young women love you. Now, Shulamite isn't just saying here that Solomon smelled good. Though he did smell good. She liked the smell of his fragrance. She liked the smell of his cologne. You see, in that day... People didn't take baths and showers like we do today. Hopefully, you take a bath or a shower every day. If you don't, that's step one to finding a spouse, okay? <laughs> if you don't take a bath or shower every day, let me just tell you, hygiene matters. So take a bath, take a shower, brush your teeth, put on some good smelling stuff because that does matter. But that isn't what she's talking about here. You see, in that day, they didn't take baths like we do today. But what they did is they would take these, these sweet-smelling oils and they would rub them on their bodies, one, to, to kind of put moisture in their skin because they lived in this arid condition and it would help their skin from not to keep it from drying out. But then also, it helped with the smell. Because they just didn't take baths every day. They didn't take showers. They would just kind of wash off. And so she's saying, I love the way you smell. But then she says this, your cologne reminds me of your name. And your name is just as sweet. Now, biblically, your name was descriptive of who you were. It revealed your character. And she is saying, your name is like a spreading fragrance. Now, now, the literal translation there is, your name is like purified oil. Purified oil was the first pressing of the oil from the olive trees. It was the purest oil. And the purified oil, the first pressing, was only used in the temple. 
And so she is saying, your name is like the oil that, that burns the, the candles in the Holy of Holies. She is saying, your name is, is a holy name. Your name is a godly name. Your character is holy. Your character is godly. Ladies, listen to me. First and foremost, look for a godly man. If you're single, don't look for a man and try to make him godly. Look for a godly man and walk through life with him. And notice, she said all the girls she knew thought Solomon was something special. In other words, not only do I see your character, your reputation, that your name is is holy and righteous, everyone else I know speaks highly of you. They know that you are a man of God. And so listen, men, godly women are looking for a man with godly character. And so if if you want to step up and you want to find a woman that's a godly woman, then become godly. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then everything else will be added unto you. You know, occasionally somebody will say, how in the world did you ever marry someone like Sherry? God's grace? And I'm just being honest. I sought to have godly character. And she was attracted to my godly character. Godly men look for, or godly women look for men who have godly character. Second, Godly women look for a man who values her above everything else apart from God. Now, before we go to verse 9, I want you to look at verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, it says this. This is Shulamite speaking. And she says, Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. Now understand, this isn't a race thing. Some people say that that Solomon was dating somebody from another race. He fell in love with someone from another race, and there's nothing wrong with that. We see that throughout Scripture. And yet, that's not what this is talking about. Because it says, her son was darkened. Or her skin was darkened by the sun. In other words, she had to work hard outside and her skin was darkened and tanned from that. Now in our day, people pay money for a good tan. And Donald Trump pays money for a terrible tan. (laughs) Did I really say that? Yes, I did. In our day, we pay for a tan. But in that day... In that day, a tan was something that was looked down upon. You see, women wanted to have fair skin because that meant they were inside ladies. It meant that they didn't have to go out into the fields and work hard. It means that they were socialites. They were upstanding. They came from the the upper crust of society. And yet here is this woman, the Shulamite, and, and she had dark skin because she had been out in the fields working. Now when it speaks of her vineyard, she's talking about her femininity and everything that affects it. 
You see, a, a woman's femininity is how she looks at herself, her complexion, her dress, her status. All of that affects a woman's femininity. And it's obvious that she is very beautiful and yet she is insecure. She said, don't stare at me. I'm, I'm dark. And, and I'm dark because I, my brothers made me go out and work out in the field. And she's very self-conscious about it. But I want you to notice what Solomon says in verse 9. This is what he says to her when she talks about her darkness. He says, you are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. Another translation says, you are as lovely as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions. So this mare was the most beautiful of white horses that pulled Pharaoh's chariot. It was a one-of-a-kind, set-apart, distinct from all the other horses. The Egyptians even looked at this horse like deity. And so here she is. She's self-conscious about how she looks. She's insecure. And Solomon says, you look at yourself and, and you see that you are dark, that you've had to work out. But when I look at you, I see you as a one of a kind. You are one among many. You are special. You are beautiful. Guys, listen. Godly women want a man that values her and that treats her as, as someone special. How do you do that? Well, you can open the door. You can be a gentleman. You can put the commode lid down. I mean, there are a lot of things that you can do. But let me tell you two ways that you can value women in your life quickly. First of all is time. When you give time to someone, it speaks value. The second thing is my words. Are my words adding value to you? Because they certainly did to the Shulamite, didn't they? She knew that Solomon valued her. She was a priority to Solomon. You see, a godly woman wants to know that that you're looking at her not just as a, another trophy in your case. You're not just looking at her as one important thing among many. But apart from God, you're the most valuable thing in his life. Men, look at me. Your job isn't most important. Your hobbies aren't most important. Apart from God, your wife is. Third. A godly man, woman is looking for a man who consistently encourages her. Uh, run, run through several verses here. They're there on your screen. Listen to what he says. How lovely are your cheeks. Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck enhanced by a string of jewels. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful your eyes are like doves, like a lily among thistles. And the dark is my darling among young women. My dove is hiding behind the cracks, behind an outcrop on the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. What is he doing? He's encouraging her. He's building her up. He's speaking kindly to her. You see, men, it's your job to encourage and build up your wife. You don't criticize her. You don't tear her down. And I know some of you will think this is sexist or, or, or whatever else. But, but guys, listen. Your wife will become what you say to her. 
The Bible says that your words have the power of life and death. And I want you to notice how she responded to this. In chapter 2, verse 1, she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. In other words, here she was saying, I am ugly and, 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 and my skin is darkened and no one, I don't want you to even look at me. And now she says, I am the lily of the valley, the white and beautiful flower. Why does she feel that way? She feels that way because Solomon built her up. There's a story of a, of a man, Johnny Lingo, who lived on an island in the South Pacific and and, and he was a well-regarded man on this island. And, and their custom was, when you were prepared or ready to, to find a wife, you had to give a dowry for that wife that you wanted to marry. And, and typically, um, you'd do it in cows, and a three- to four-cow woman was a very nice woman. But, but when Johnny Lingo decided that he wanted to marry this, this one woman, he went to her father, and he offered her eight or offered him eight cows eight cows for this woman now and everybody was amazed because there was nothing special about this woman as a matter of fact she she had slumped shoulders she was very shy she was rather homely looking and, and they thought that that this woman's father had taken advantage of johnny lingo but johnny paid eight cows for this woman about six months later, there was a visitor that came to the island from the United States, and he had heard about Johnny Lingo and, and his eight-cow wife and how he had obviously been taken advantage of. And, and so he wanted to meet Johnny Lingo, and when he met her and met his wife, he was shocked because he didn't see a woman that was slumped down and rather homely and shy. He met a woman who was, was very confident and beautiful and and outgoing. And, and the, the, the American said, I, how did this happen? I, I, I mean, I was, I was told that, that when you married her, she looked nothing like this. How did this happen? Johnny Lingo said, well, I, I, I loved her. And I wanted an eight-cow wife. And, and so I paid eight cows for her. And, and when we were married, I started treating her like an eight-cow cow wife and when I began to treat her like an eight cow wife she began to act she began to look like an eight cow wife guys listen to me some of you are married to women who are beat down by you maybe not physically but emotionally verbally they have so much potential and yet they're not living up to their potential because you're beating them down. You're not encouraging them. I pray to God that when I come to the end of my life, whenever that may be, and I die and, and Sherry is still here, I pray to God that she will say the absolute most Important decision, the absolute best decision I made apart from accepting Jesus was marrying Rocky Purvis because he made me a better woman. He helped me become all that God wanted me to be. You see, guys, that's what a godly woman is looking for. Fourth, a godly woman is looking for a man who takes care of her. Now, we have to hurry here, but I, I'm going to have to hit some of these last real quick. But, but listen to what it says in verse 17. The beams of our house 
our cedars, our rafters, our firs. Chapter 2, verse 3. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my lover among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade and taste his delicious fruit. Now, what is that saying, those, those two verses? It's saying that Shulamite feels safe and secure in his presence. In other words, Solomon is her protector. He is her provider. He is her pastor. And I got to tell you, Women, godly women, are looking for that kind of man. You see, men, you set the tone. Physically, financially, spiritually, you are responsible for taking care of your wife. Does that mean that she can't work? Absolutely not. Does that, does that mean that she can't make more than you do? Absolutely not. But what it does mean, and look at me, it means that you have been given a God-given responsibility by God to take care of your wife. It's your responsibility to provide for her, to nurture her, to protect her. That's your responsibility given to you by God. And right here, she's thanking Solomon for being a hardworking man. There are some single guys that are saying, I want a good woman. And what they need to do to find a good woman is get off the couch, quit playing Nintendo or whatever it is that we play today. Get a job and work hard, and, and maybe they will find somebody. You see, women are looking for security. Women aren't looking to marry babies and make men. Women are looking to marry men and then make babies. And so, men, we need to understand that, that godly women are looking for men who can take care of. Now, now, notice what happens here, and we're not going to get into this. We just don't have time, and we're going to deal with it later on in this series. But I want you to notice the result thus far of what happened. I mean, because Solomon is coming in here, and he's, he's just loving her and valuing her and taking care of her. Chapter 2, verse 5, this is what Shulamite says. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. And you go, what does that mean? Well, raisins were an aphrodisiac. The, the, the next verse, verse 6 says, His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me and God bless the reading of his word. <laughs> what Shulamite is saying is, Man, I am so in love with this guy. I just want to... Well, I'm not going to tell you what she wants. You're going to have to figure it out yourself. But, man, she's just wanting to get with Solomon and... She's wanting to make babies. And, and you know, the thing, God doesn't sit back and say, you know, you're not married yet. Those feelings are wrong. Don't have those feelings. He's not saying that. He's not saying there's anything wrong with your, your attraction, your feelings for Solomon. But she is warned later on, do not awaken love until it's time. And so what we have to do is we have to recognize that, that it's okay to have certain feelings when you're in this courtship stage, but you don't act on those feelings. And so when, when a woman is valued like that, she's going to be responsive. But finally, and let me just hit this quickly, a godly woman is looking for a man who pursues her. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, he escorts me to the banquet hall. It is obvious how much he loved me. Chapter 2, verse 8, I just want to read this to you real quick. It says, ah, I hear my lover coming. This is Shulamite speaking. He's leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle and a young stag. A stud in today's language. Look, there he is behind the wall, looking through the window, peering into my room. 
Now, you're going, golly, is he some kind of peeping Tom? No, he's just excited. He's gone to her house, and he's ready to take her out on a date. My lover said to me, rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come. The cooing of turtle doves fill the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit. The fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. What is he doing? He's pursuing her. Now, here's what I've discovered. Listen to me, men. Most men are fairly good, though I believe that we are, we've raised a generation of lazy men. I think most men are fairly good at pursuing when they're in courtship. But then they get married, they have their trophy, and they quit pursuing. But understand, pursuit is not something you do until you find the person you want to marry. Pursuit is something you do for a lifetime. And guys, that's your responsibility. So he was dating her. He was pursuing her. So that's some of the things that a godly woman looks for. And goodness gracious, in about five minutes, I've got to give you what a godly man looks for. Boy, this is going to be tough. We have to run through them. First of all, a godly man encourages him. A godly man encourages or looks for a woman who encourages him to lead. Look at verses 2 through 4. This is Shulamite speaking. She says, kiss me and kiss me again for your love is sweeter than mine. Wine, take me with you. Come, let's run. Wow. I just got to tell you, I love the Bible. Kiss me. Kiss me again. Ladies, can I say to you, that's a good place for you to take your highlighter out and highlight the verse. I mean, if you really want to make your husband happy, you highlight that verse and you look at him and go, this is going to be my life verse. You want to make him happy, then you can do that. Kiss me and kiss me again. Did you know that passionate kissing is the first thing to go when a a marriage starts going south. Did you know that? Passionate kissing disappears before sex disappears. Why is that? Because there's something real intimate, isn't there, about passionate kissing. Whereas we've made sex in our culture today an act that anybody can do. So she's saying, kiss me and kiss me again. What is she doing? She's saying, Solomon, come here and take me. I want you to lead me. Listen, godly men are looking for women who want them and encourage them to lead. Men are going to lead something. They're either going to lead in their homes or they're going to lead somewhere else. And if you do not encourage your man to lead in the home, trust me, you are crushing his spirit. The Bible makes it very clear that God expects a man to lead his family. Not to dictate to his family, not to lord over his family, but he is called to lead his family. And a godly man is looking for a woman who encourages that. Doesn't nag 
Some of you say, well, I want a godly husband that leads. Well, be a godly wife and quit nagging your husband. Because the Bible says a nagging wife is worse than living on a roof all by yourself. It's pretty bad. So a godly man is looking for a wife who encourages him to lead. Second, a godly man is looking for a wife who admires and affirms him. Let me read some verses here. Uh, How happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. How right they are to adore you. My lover, and this is Shulamite speaking here, my lover is like a sachet of myrrh lying between my breasts. He is like a bouquet of sweet Henna blossoms from the vineyards of Ian Getty. You are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our bed. Ah, I hear my lover coming. He is leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle and a young stag. Look, there he is behind the wall. What is this saying? This is saying that Shulamite adores, she admires her husband, and she lets him know. Now, this sachet that she is talking about, the women would have this, and it was filled with with some kind of ointment or or myrrh was was the most expensive of them. And it would give off her fragrance. And, And what she is saying is this, when I'm lying in my bed at night, it's as if you are that sachet of myrrh. I'm thinking of you as I go to sleep. I'm dreaming of you as I sleep. And when I wake up in the morning, you are on my mind. Listen, ladies. You may not realize this, but most men struggle with insecurity. And if a woman comes into our life and starts building us up, we will be like putty in their hands. And, and if you are constantly criticizing and condemning and telling him he needs to be more like whoever you think he needs to be more like, he's going to shut down. Godly men are looking for someone who will admire and affirm. Third, godly men are looking for someone who is modest. Verse 7, where will you rest your sheep at noon? Or where will you rest your sheep at noon? For why should I wander like a prostitute among your friends and their flocks? Now, in the literal translation, it's saying, why should I go out like a veiled woman? Now, a veiled woman in that day who went out at noon was a prostitute. And and what she's saying is, I'm not going to go out and compromise my values for a man. There are some things I will not do to get a man. God has established some boundaries in life. And we're going to discover next week that one of those boundaries is sex. Sex is great, it's good, it's wonderful, but it's for marriage. And Shulamite is saying there are some things I will not do to get you. And you just need to understand that. Now there's some of you right now who feel pretty bad because you've already broken that. You, you, you use sex to get whoever you're married to. And here's what I know, you can't go back and unscramble an egg. You just can't. So what can you do? Well, well, if you've been immoral or impure in your relationship before your marriage, the only thing you can do is humble yourself before God, humble yourself before your spouse, and ask God to forgive you. The two of you can go to God together and ask God to forgive you. I believe a godly man, if, if you've taken advantage of your wife before you were married, you need to go to her, you need to get on your knee, and you need to say, I am so sorry 
forgive me. I, I didn't behave like I should have. Godly men are looking for a woman who is modest. Some of you ladies are saying, I'm just attracting the wrong kind of man. Can I tell you the reason you're attracting the wrong kind of man is because you're using the wrong kind of bait. If you're showing your booty to every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the world, you're going to get men who want your booty. If your skirt or your blouse or your dress is allowing your breasts to hang out, then, then don't be surprised when a guy comes to you and thinks you're easy because that's the way you're dressing. Ladies, listen to me. It's time for Christians to raise the standard. It's time for us to begin to be more modest in our dress and more modest in our appearance. A godly man wants a hot-looking woman, but he wants her hot for him and nobody else. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, that's at least what I think. Fourth, a godly man is looking for a woman who works hard. Look at verses 5 and 6. I am dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem. Dark as the tents of Kedar. Dark as the curtains of Solomon's tent. Don't stare at me because I am dark. The sun is dark in my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for the vineyards so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. What is she saying? I had to work hard. And Solomon ex- respects that. He admires that. Now, now hear me. It's not saying that a woman needs to work or has to work. I don't believe that. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty old-fashioned. Ever since the day we were married, my wife and I made a commitment that we would live on my income. And when we first got married, that wasn't very much. But we just said we're going to live within our means, and we did. My wife wanted to be a nurse. I encouraged her to be a nurse, and she went to school after we were married, became a nurse, and she worked. But she didn't have to work. And we always used that money that, that she made for other things. We used it to give gifts that we couldn't give, to give to ministries that we wouldn't be able to. We used it to pay for our kids to go to college. We, none of our kids have student loans. We, we used it to, to, to pay off our house. We used it for things like that. We, we didn't use it to live on. Why? Because we didn't want her to get into the habit of having to work. We wanted her to work if she wanted to. Because let me tell you what. It's hard enough being a mama. Amen. And I mean all too often you know we. Men come home and have two or three kids. And they're running you ragged. And guy comes in and he sees toys on the floor and there's dishes in the, in, the, in the sink. They're not even made it to the dishwasher you've got. And you go, what have you been doing all day? Can I tell you, men, that's not what you want to say. Because there's lots of ways to work hard. A godly woman works hard. Finally, a godly woman takes care of herself. Verses 10 through 12, chapter 1. How lovely are your cheeks. This is Solomon speaking. Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck. Enhanced by a string of jewels. We will make for you earrings of gold, beads of silver. The king is lying on his couch, enchanted by the fragrance of your perfume. Do you notice all that saying? Here she is. She's wearing earrings. She's wearing a 
pearl necklace. She's wearing perfume. What has she done? She's fixed herself up. She looks nice. And Solomon likes that. Ladies, listen to me. If you're married, your husband fell in love with you. If you used a certain bait to attract him, and then you got married, and you totally changed the bait, and he struggles with that, understand he has a right to struggle with that. Because he fell in love with you when you were doing certain things. I mean, if you fixed yourself up and looked nice, and then, you know, after you got married on your honeymoon, you always were wearing baggy shorts and you wore flannel to bed. He's going, wow, this is different than I anticipated. And he has a right to think that. You see, a godly man is looking for a woman who takes care of himself. And and so what, what are we learning here? We're learning this. What you need to do is you need to be the person God wants you to be if you want to track the person that you want to be with. Focus on you, being the best you you can be, and trust God with the rest. And if you'll be the best you you can be, God will honor that. God will bless you. I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes and What I want us to do right now is I just want us, goodness gracious, we are so rushed. But goodness gracious, I I just want us to take a moment. I want us to pray. I want us to pray for marriages. And if you're here with every head bowed, with every eye closed, if you're here and you're saying, Rocky, I, I just want you to pray for my marriage. If that's where you're at right now, with every head bowed, with every eye closed, would you just raise your hand right now? If you're saying, I want you to pray for my marriage. Let me tell you, my hand's raised. I've got a good marriage, but it could be a lot better. I want our marriages to bring glory to God and bring joy to our hearts. Let's pray for them. Father God, I pray today that we will make a commitment to be the person you want us to be. Father, I pray that we'll quit casting blame when our marriage isn't what it should be. We'll start looking in the mirror. Lord, make our marriages marriages that are pleasing to you. Make our marriages marriages that, Lord, bring joy and excitement to our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.